Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. Welcome back to the 10 Adventures podcast. I'm really excited for our podcast today as I'm talking to somebody whose journey I've been following online for years. Today, we're talking with Tom Tursich who has spent the last seven years walking the world with his dog, Savannah. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rich. I've just been kind of like living vicariously through your social media posts for, it must be a long time because I'm following you on Facebook, but uh, it's kind of kind of really cool that somebody whose journey I feel like I've been a part of, uh, I'm getting to talk to you. So so I'm really excited that, uh, that we're chatting here today. Uh, the first question I want to ask is, how did this trip come about? You know, deciding to walk the world right out of university is pretty massive. Like, how, how did you decide on that? It was burst out of or came out of uh, a friend's death when I was 17. She was 16. She was a really good person and she died in this sort of freak accident. And after she died, it was this realization for me that I was going to die as well. And it could happen suddenly and you know instantly and out of nowhere and so it, it kind of caused me to reflect on everything reflect on my life and try and sort out how do i integrate this fact that i'm going to die into how to live when i thought about what i wanted out of life uh, i knew i wanted to see the world uh, i wanted adventure and i wanted to understand the world Sort of what solved all of those things that I wanted uh, was this idea of walking around the world. And that idea came out of seeing Steve Newman, this Ohioan who had walked around the world in the 70s, and then Carl Bushby, this uh, ex-British paratrooper who's still walking around the world. And so I saw those two stories, and that really resonated with me. And then it was eight, nine years of saving money and paying off loans and uh, and then getting a little lucky uh, right before I left and being able to grab a sponsor before uh, before taking off. Uh, but yeah, really it just came out of came out of a friend's death and then sort of wanting adventure. And so along those 8 years, was this something that you kind of knew you were going to do or was it something I'd like to do this but who knows if it'll happen? How far before did you were you pretty certain you were going to do this. So my friend Emery passed away in the summer of 2006. And it was the next winter, that winter, that I had resolved to walk around the world pretty much. And it there was a couple months of fog and uncertainty. But then once I found this idea, I just settled on it and, and knew right away that this is what I was going to do. And it kind of became my flag in the distance that I would direct everything towards. And initially, I didn't even want to go to college because that was just going to divert me for a while and I'd have loans. But my mom prudently made sure I went to college. And if I had left when I was 17, I probably would be dead somewhere <laughs> along the way or just, you know, who knows what would happen. I was just a fool back then. Uh, so I, I'm grateful that I went to college. Uh, but the entire time that I was in school and then after school was all about saving money to make the walk happen. You planned it for so long. You're committed. 
that probably is, you know, a characteristic. You actually then went then and went and did it. I think a lot of people dream about things, but they're never like really committed. And even if they go and start to do it, they, they might not finish it. Uh, one thing I thought was cool about your route is it, it was definitely not the most direct route. Like, it seems to me like you were kind of just like exploring places you wanted to. How much of that route selection was like, did you know in advance or how much was it? Like, I think you mentioned in, in one of your blog posts that you were kind of always just looking a couple weeks ahead, but kind of the big picture. Did you have that route at the start of kind of like the way you wanted to go? It was just like the small details that you figured out at the end. Yeah, exactly. I knew I wanted to hit every continent. And so that was the main criteria. And then the next thing I considered was how do I do this with as little visa trouble as possible? And so that's how I drew my route. And I also didn't want it to be 12 years long. There's a Canadian guy who walked around the world. I can't remember his name. He's Jean. Uh, but he walked, I think, for 14 years and he walked everywhere. And there's a Japanese guy who walked for about 10 years. It's been seven years for me, but initially, Five years was more than enough. I knew it would be a really long time, and I didn't want this to be all-consuming forever. I knew I would get tired eventually out here. Uh, so it was sort of this balance of, okay, hitting every continent and then avoiding the visas. And so I only needed visas for uh, Algeria and Uzbekistan. And then the route, when you kind of zoom in on the route, that was at the beginning – a lot of working out the kinks, pretty much, and walking on dangerous roads, on these windy little roads in Pennsylvania where cars almost hit me, and then onto roads that were too big until figuring out you know, what roads worked best for me. And then eventually when I got to uh, Central America, pretty much just became – I just followed the Pan American all the way down to uh, Chile and then Argentina. And so now it's kind of like I have it very figured out what roads I can walk and it's really, I don't stress about it kind of thing. And I'm able to look at the map and be like, okay, this one will work. This one won't work very quickly assess it. And then sort of plan my uh, days, maybe a week or two weeks in advance and kind of know, have a general idea of what's going to work and what's not going to work. Um, and because I push a cart, I push this big baby carriage uh, that's limiting in some ways. It's I think the only way to walk internationally uh, especially in places uh, like Peru and Chile, where I was in the desert for months at a time. I have to have that space for water and for dog food for Savannah. But it's also limiting in the sense that I'm not doing the Appalachian Trail or you know, a trail in Chile. Uh, occasionally, I'll get onto a trail very briefly, but for the most part, it's roads or farm roads. And so that's another limiting factor about you know how I choose my routes. But Luckily, those are well mapped and you know all around the world, so it's pretty easy to plan out and head. You mentioned your rig, and I always thought that was cool. It's a Thule Cougar. I have like a twenty-year-old version that was handed down when it was still a brand called Chariot. And actually, we used ours to take our kids out hiking on fire roads in the mountains. And I thought, what a great idea for like instead of carrying all this gear, you had a fairly light backpack. And so, can you maybe just tell like what kind of stuff you'd carry in your back, what you'd put in your in your Thule? If you don't know what it is, how would you describe it? I'd say it's like a sports stroller, essentially. It's like a jogging stroller. Yeah. So it has the two, I guess, sixteen-inch wheels and then twelve-inch wheels. I think that's what it is. But yeah, it's like this totally. A crazy engineering piece of engineering where it has shocks and it carries a lot. So I can put up 
to maybe 100 pounds and do it very easily. And there's times I've really had to load down with water. But day to day, what I have in the car is pretty much hiking gear. You know, I have a tent and sleeping bag. Right now I have uh, a liner for the sleeping bag and I have a down liner for the sleeping bag because I'm walking in winter. Uh, I also have Savannah's food. I have right now a down jacket for Savannah, my dog, and that uh, is just for winter. And then in summer, keep a... Uh, a summer jacket to keep the sun off her. And then I have a crate in there for food that I keep all the food in. It's also kind of works as my desk when I'm in my tent. I put my laptop in there. I have the laptop for editing photos, for writing, for doing videos occasionally. I have a camera. I have a tripod, which is the sort of luxury that I would just never bring if I had a backpack. Uh, and that is like, again, one of the benefits of having the card is since I'm doing this for so long, if I was carrying a backpack, first off, my back would be destroyed by now, just walking seven years with this massive tumor on my back would destroy me. Uh, and then secondly, I hate having those big backpacks. It drives me crazy. Uh, but thirdly, and practically, again, it, it allows me to carry more weight, so food and water uh, when I'm in deserted places like the desert or even Wyoming, uh, and it affords me some luxuries. And so I'm not ultralighting, and I wouldn't want to be sort of ultralighting for such an extended period of time. So I have a little bit heavy duty of a tent. I have the laptop. And so that just makes it a little bit more comfortable, uh, not having to pinch weight all the time. Uh, so yeah, for the international travel, again, I think it's kind of the only, for the international walking, I think it's the only way to really handle it. And, and so you started this solo and I know um, a lot of people are terrified of doing anything solo, let alone walking around the world. You chose to do it solo. Why, you know, was that a conscious choice of, I want to do this by myself or is it, Hey, there's not many people that want to walk around the world. I think there's been a dozen or so, so far that it's just, it's like necessity. I think it was more necessity. I also, just was so determined to do it from 17 on and it was my idea kind of thing it was it was that was it was my driving force and so to invite someone else in on it you know seven years later or six years later uh, just didn't seem realistic and then in practicality, I had saved up for, for years and years and years to put myself in a situation to just take the chance of hopefully getting a sponsor, you know, a couple years in and making it happen. And so out of just a sense of practicality, I kind of only had, you know, one shot at this and it took me a while to get there and to, you know, I don't know, I don't know any really rich kids who his parents would just give them a ton of money and, and get them to go along with it. Uh, so it was really just, you know, this thing I had worked towards. And, um, I guess also I had always just envisioned it doing all, doing it on my own. The people who I had seen do it before, uh, had done it on their own. And so that was sort of what I was envisioning. And I think about four months in, that's when you uh, you brought Savannah onto the journey. Savannah is, is your adorable uh, pooch. What was the you know criteria? You know, why'd you make that decision partway through? 
Yes, I, I walked on my own for four months and through those four months, you know, sleeping in strange places. And unless I have a really nice campsite, it's almost a guarantee that I'm going to wake up in the middle of the night a few times thinking I heard something. And so every night I'm thinking, man, it would be really nice to have a dog that you know has better hearing than you and would bark if something was coming. And it just would take away that part of your brain, that lizard part of your brain that just is waking up at every noise. And so that was the main impetus. And when I got to Austin, Texas, the first day I was there, I went to an adoption shelter just to sort of you know, feel it out. Yeah, I wasn't convinced that I was going to get a dog. And I spent about two hours there trying to feel it out with these older five-year-old, six-year-old pits with behavioral problems and that had been dumped. And they're all nice dogs. I didn't really feel any connection. And they all would have had stuff I would have needed to work out. And right as I'm about to leave, they bring out these two little puppies that were just found on the side of the highway. And I knew pretty quickly, first of all, that I got lucky that they had puppies there. And then secondly, a puppy would be perfect because it would grow up on the road and it wouldn't know any other life. And so I, I picked up, her name was Lulu at the time. I renamed her to Savannah. And she's been with me ever since. She's grown up on the road and kind of the only life she knows is walking six to eight hours a day. <laughs> I, it must just be a dream life for Savannah, just outdoors, able to explore, see, you know, meet other humans and other animals. But I know in some countries, like there's a lot of strays where uh, we were talking with uh, a guy a few weeks ago who walked up the coast of uh, Morocco. And he was like routinely attacked by stray dogs where you have to carry some stones with you and a big stick, basically, if you're in Morocco walking. But it's different as a human as opposed to having, you know, Savannah with you. Was that a concern or, you know, did you have to have to look at ways to protect Savannah when you were in some places where there are a lot of aggressive strays? Yeah, I would say that is probably the most developed skill I have is fending off stray dogs. It's been so just so honed in me after Central and South America that I can fend off pretty much any dog, I would say. And with Savannah too, with dog to dog, when they see when a dog sees another dog crossing their territory, they really lose their mind. If it's just another human, they kind of don't register it. So it's like every dog in Central and South America is coming after us. And the thing is too about a lot of these dogs in you know, some of these countries, and again, Central South America, we're, we're definitely the worst uh, with this. But the thing is, they don't have the same sort of relationship with dogs that, say, Americans do, where for us or Canadians, for us, it's they're like dogs are almost a religion for us, where they're like worshipped and coddled and they're almost invariably very nice and taken care of. But in a lot of Central and South America – uh, a dog will maybe kind of linger outside of someone's house. They'll throw it some scraps. So the dog will come back. And then this relationship builds of the person kind of giving the dog the scraps, but they never give it any affection and they never take any ownership of it. Maybe they'll even throw rocks at it or kick it or whatever. And so the dog becomes territorial of this area, but they also haven't been shown any love. They're territorial because that's where they get their food, but they haven't been given affection. So then they just become very – not aggressive, just territorial. There's times when we would leave a city or even in a city you'd see some dogs, but it's more kind of on the outskirts of a city when the houses start spreading out a little bit where there's a lot of dogs and outside of each house. And it's just – there's days where it's just like hours of just fending off dogs and – 
again, I have it so hyper developed, but there was only probably, I would say there's only two times where I thought the dog that we encountered was truly violent and would have gladly killed Savannah and ripped my leg off if it could have. Uh, the one time was in Algeria and I kind of think that the dog may have been rabid, but it was someone else's dog. It was a, the shepherd. I'd never seen a look on the dog's eye before where it was just it looked like it was out for blood. And luckily the shepherd grabbed it and kind of dragged it away. Uh, even still, I who knows how that dog ended. Right? It really did not look right. And then the other time was in Azerbaijan. And we're like crossing this mountain and we're, we're making this turn and this huge white uh, pit bull comes running out of this house and it has like a 30 foot chain dragging behind it that it that it had broken off. And that already is terrifying. And then it was at us really out for blood and snapping at my leg. And so that was like so, – and behind me was a cliff. So I just kind of had to really work my way slowly along this situation until I was out of its territory. Uh, but otherwise, I'd say most of the dogs are just want to bark and get you away from them. And those I can handle like in my sleep anymore. You just kind of turn and throw your, your dominance at them and they sort of back away generally. Okay. So I've actually been attacked by a dog and I've had two kind of dog shepherd dogs that you know almost attacked so i'm actually although i love dogs i'm eager to learn these tools for these kind of crazy dogs you meet out in the wild so if you see an aggressive dog you just turn your shoulder is is, is that how you deal with it well i would say the first really useful thing you can do is just like pretend to pick up a rock because if the dog is aggressive and if it's been hit before, it'll know what it means. It'll know that you're picking up a rock to throw it at it. And then you'll know it's an aggressive dog if it flinches or if it backs away. But then it flinches and it's recognizing you as a threat. If that is probably enough already, uh, some of them will come closer to you and snap at you, maybe not too far away. Then you, you may, maybe you have to throw a rock at it and, and scare it off a little bit. I mean, that's the rare case. And But I think what works best is to sort of maybe even just do like turn around quickly and really make yourself as big as possible and just tell them like, dude, you want to go? We can go. And that, that almost always will stop them. And I'd say works better than just about anything. Um, and it's really, for me, it's like this thing that's just been, you know, ingrained in me. But at first it's, it's so subtle reading the dogs as well. And, uh, you know, I've developed that a lot. So it can be scary at first. It's like, hey, you know, I'm going to stare down this dog. But most of the time, I'd say that works best, better than anything else. You've had a unique opportunity to kind of like explore all these different cultures and places. And in a way that's like not your typical traveler who's, you know, in a car, in a bus, seeing things through the windows. You know, you're going through tiny villages and towns. You're interacting with locals. There's no way we can, you know, cover everything. So I just want to ask some questions just like on the highlights and just, just kind of get like some brief ideas of, you know, things you saw or, or, or feelings you had. So the first thing is you've tasted all this different food along your trip. Like what is one thing that, you know, maybe people don't know about or one thing you're like, oh, I could eat this again and again over and over again. Yeah, I would say maybe there's been a lot of really good foods, uh, but Two of them come to mind that are maybe 
a little less popular in the States or maybe not even known about in the States or in Canada. Uh, the first one is just the the ceviche in Peru. And ceviche, probably everyone's heard about ceviche, but the ceviche in Peru is just unreal. It's so good. And there it was so cheap. And I would be able to get it pretty frequently for like $5 a bowl. You know, it's just heaven. It's fantastic. Uh, and then the other thing that really stands out in my mind is called Veroniki. And it's these Ukrainian sweet dumplings. So they'll put like cherries and cheese in there or maybe strawberries in there. They're so good. And I actually didn't have them in the Ukraine. I had them when I was stuck in Azerbaijan uh, from this very uh, hometown kind of Ukrainian place. And I would just dream about them. I couldn't wait to get them every day. Uh, so those two, I would say, stand out the most. Uh, I've had some weird food as well. But as far as uh, food, I can't wait to have again. I'd say those two. Man, I'm getting hungry just, just, just thinking about some ceviche. Because yeah, here I'm in uh, just beside the Canadian Rockies. So we're far from any any sort of water. One thing, everyone who does these big trips, you know, when you read their books, or you talk to them, they talk about the hospitality and kind of how kind the world is. Was there a place, I guess, first off, did you experience the same, that same thing? And then if so, was there a place that really stood out for hospitality along your walk? Yeah, absolutely. I would say the place, it's almost places that stood out most were the Islamic countries. Uh, so North Africa, Turkey, and Uzbekistan in particular, um, they sort of have a, it almost seems like a, a core tenet of the religion to be hospitable. And so the people all across North Africa and in Turkey as well, are just so warm and so willing to help you out and make your travel easier. Uh, I know this this one time in particular comes to mind in Algeria where I was shown a lot of kindness and was put up a bunch of times. But this this one time in particular, a little backstory is Algeria is basically a cash economy. It's very closed off. And there was, I think, maybe three or four ATMs in the whole country that I could withdraw money from. And... I had this police escort with me 24 hours a day, and they demanded I stay in a hotel every night so I was at a safe place to sleep. So I had money, but I was not anticipating to stay in a hotel every night. So I ran through this uh, bit of money at some point pretty you know, pretty quickly, and I don't know anyone. I have a friend who's you know, a friend of a friend in the country who lives basically on the other side of the country, and he makes a call to some guy he knows around me that lives over the mountains. And this guy drove like four hours out to meet me down onto the coast and just handed me like $300 or something like that. And just said, Hey, no problem. It's a favor for my friend. And then drove off. And it was so just like above and beyond, uh, any sort of anything I was expecting, uh, that, yeah, I always remember that. Uh, but in general, I mean, the whole world is filled with a lot of really, good and helpful people, far more than there are malicious uh, people. And it's just been driven home like a million times. I mean, there was a time in Guatemala, I'm sitting on the side of the road, exhausted, covered in sweat, and this father and son see me and talk and this, you know, say, yeah, you just stay at our house. And I didn't ask for it. Uh, another time in the desert of uh, Chile, I come to this little crossroad 
and it's super windy and there's this one little restaurant there and I ask, it's very windy out, you know, can you mind if I just sleep inside and say, yeah, sure, whatever, like no problem. Uh, you know, I've been given food a ton of times in Istanbul, Turkey, uh, this hotel, this guy who had been, uh, his daughter had been following me, put me up for my entire stay in Istanbul, right in the, uh, the heart of uh, the old district. And, uh, you know, it's a small thing, but earlier in Turkey, uh, a farmer put me up and then took me to this wedding that was happening that night. Uh, so it just, it's happened everywhere in every country. There's been a lot of generosity and uh, it's really reassuring. And, you know, it, it makes the, the really large systematic problems of the world very frustrating because everyone is good and uh, generous and wants to do the right thing. But it's just such a complex world. And you, if you get a couple of bad actors in high power, then uh, it can ruin it for everyone. Like you just verbalized, like my biggest concern with the world, people are all nice, but somehow things are screwed up, you know, with these, you know, bad actors uh, that you, you said it much more eloquently. I'll have to re-listen and, and take that, take that for, for my own. You random camped a lot through your trip where you just go in and find a place. What made a perfect random camping place for you? Yeah, the perfect random camping place is somewhere not fenced in. So I maybe it is private property, but I don't know it's private property. So I can pretend like it's public land or something and not worry about that. Uh, it's in a country uh, without uh, a lot of uh, weapon possession. So not the U.S. Uh, it's flat and it's free of mosquitoes and it's secluded and hidden from sight lines. And... There are like few better feelings than coming to the perfect campsite, uh, you know, especially after a long day to find like, a nice nook where I can totally relax is just paradise. And I would say as well, the the desert, like, again, in Peru and in Chile that I was walking in for months was fantastic camping because I knew I could just walk as long as I wanted. And then when I was tired, I would just turn off the road, walk into the desert and basically disappear. <laughs> I would lay down my tarp. There'd be no bugs. And I would look at the stars. So that was as good as it gets. You saw a lot of different places. You obviously had planned this a little bit. Was there any place along your journey that really surprised you that it was, you know, better than you'd thought or it was, you know, really different than you thought? Yeah, this is an easy one. It's uh, Georgia up in the Caucasus, uh, for sure. Georgia, I had no expectations of, and it just blew me away with how beautiful it was and how rich of a culture there was there. The wine, their Georgian orange wine is some of the best wine in the world. Their food, their cuisine is incredible. Their architecture is gorgeous. The people are young and vibrant and driven. And uh, it's a very democratic country and it's becoming more democratic. And I think it's a really interesting point. It's a really interesting uh, study kind of on the fortunes of a country because uh, ostensibly the neighbor Azerbaijan, which is uh, wealthier and on a per capita basis is wealthier, uh, it, but it's a petrol state and it has a dictator primarily because it's a petrol state because someone can – Gain a, a family can gain a lot of wealth and maintain power. And Georgia essentially has no wealthy uh, natural commodities. You know, so they, they're not mining. There's no oil. And so everyone there is either an artist or an intellectual or a restaurateur. Everyone is doing something interesting. And, you know, you think on the face value, 
if you have this oil in the ground, if you have this immediate wealth, that's you know so valuable. But it can also be such a detriment to a country and sort of put it into a malaise. Whereas Georgia, because it doesn't have anything, is just bursting with all this creativity and enterprise. And uh, it's just such a beautiful country. And Tbilisi, the capital, is small, but it's incredibly packed with things to do and art to see. It's interesting you say that because I, I feel like here in North America, you see that just in cities. You know, if you look at Houston or where I am in Calgary, these are kind of like, you know, oil and gas cities where there are, you know, lots of lawyers and engineers and accountants. Um, and it's kind of like a very, they're very bland cities where other cities that don't have the economy are kind of like weird and fun. Uh, I had never thought of it on like a country level, but uh, it, it makes it makes total sense. You've seen so much. Are there any places you went to where you're like, these are places everyone should really make an effort to see in their life? I would say Turkey is on a list for, uh, should be on the list for a lot of Westerners uh, that I think a lot of people immediately sort of dismiss maybe as dangerous or or just too foreign because they see the uh, star and crescent on the flag and associate that with maybe Islamic extremism. Uh, but Turkey is one of the safest countries in the world, and it has an incredibly rich history and one of the most sort of diverse histories in the world because it's at this crossroads of these ancient cultures. And it also is a big country with a lot to see. It has some gorgeous Mediterranean coastal towns. It has Cappadocia up on the high plateau, which is some of the most beautiful dry desert valleys where people uh, used to live inside the stones and it's just gorgeous. And then up in the north, you have this uh, really dense, um, rich, uh, dark forest and the Black Sea where you get great um, seafood. And and then you have Istanbul, which is just chaotic and packed and beautiful. And uh, so it's, it's one of these countries that I think has a lot of negative ideas uh, swirling around it, especially in the West. But for me, I would say it's a top three country to visit. And it's so warm and welcoming. The people there, I think, are accustomed to different cultures and different people passing through. So they're really warm. And then it's also a little more European, I think, than a lot of people think. You know, it is like there's an uh, there's a part of it that is uh, on the European continent. Uh, half of Istanbul is on the European continent. And so I think it'll surprise people uh, to go there to realize it's really not that incredibly foreign after all. And it's uh, the people there will be uh, very welcoming to to having them. It's interesting. I've actually heard a few other people who have done similar journeys, you know, by bike say the same thing. Turkey was just like, it totally surprised them. They really loved it. It's so diverse with, you know, sea and mountains and great food and great people. It's actually a place I've never been. So like every time somebody says, I'm like, okay. Turkey, Turkey. So uh, I, I really want to go now as well. Very cheap as well. Yeah. It's a, I used to live in England. It's a popular holiday destination for kind of like cheap holidays. But I'm actually interested, as you said, like there's the, the cultural history, there's the diversity of mountains and sea, and there's just incredible food and whatnot. Um, so it's it just keeps moving up the list of where we go next. Going to the kind of the opposite extreme, you know, from, you know, warm turkey to cold walking across the u.s in winter this is the final stretch what's it like walking in winter how are you holding up uh, uh, doing this yeah it sucks <laughs> <laughs> um, it's really tough and uh, especially uh, when i was walking 
Wyoming in November, which wasn't the worst of winter, but Wyoming is at about uh, 8,000 feet, so nearly 3,000 meters, and it's insanely windy there. And so that was just miserable, and especially as the days were getting shorter, I was in the tent for maybe 15 hours a day, and then I would wake up. You know, I couldn't wake up before dawn. It was just too cold and windy. I'd wait until the sun hit my tent, pack up, and then walk basically to sundown. And Kansas has been pretty similar. Uh, I posted up in Denver for about a month and a half to wait out the worst of winter and the shortest days. And then once I started, I descended into Kansas. And again, it's just been windy and empty. And the wind makes it so much colder. Uh, But luckily right now, the days are getting longer. Uh, I'm hiding from a cold snap right now, but it's the end of February. Hopefully this is the last cold snap there is. And from here on out, it's all 65, 70 degree days and, you know, 40 degree nights. But yeah, it's been it's been really challenging. Uh, I was looking forward to it, uh, honestly, beforehand, because I I generally embrace like a challenge like that. I like I like that. I like testing myself. But after being abroad for so long and kind of going through so much and and putting myself up against so many physically demanding things and and so many physically and emotionally and mental and mentally demanding trials that when I finally landed back in the U.S. after being abroad for six and a half years, this emotional and mental armor that I had put on from from all that you know, physically and emotionally um, testing, challenging uh, time uh, sort of just fell away. And part of it was when you're abroad, you're always a little bit on the defensive because you don't want to offend anyone. You don't know the culture as well. You don't know the language. So even if you're very comfortable in a place, you're still a foreigner. And so you always have this sort of space between you and uh, the country. And it's out of respect and it's also out of uh, self-preservation in a way. It's just very human, instinctually human to want to fit in and not upset anyone. And so I had that guard up for a long time. And then when I came back to the States, it fell away and I could relax again. And I'm in this country that I know and I know the culture, I know the language, I know the rhythm of it. When it fell away, sort of all my guards fell away. And uh, I had built up this toughness after so long. And now it's just like these days are exhausting. And at the end of the day, I'm done. And I, and the wind, which when I was younger and beginning and I was on fire with this passion for the walk and so excited to live out my dream. Now that wind is like, oh, my God, when is this going to stop? I just let me get out of this. <laughs> and so – Whereas before I used to really embrace the challenge. Now it's sort of, I'm just dragging myself to the finish line at this point because I'm home and I'm you know ready to, to finally actually be home and have a roof over my head every night. I actually can't imagine doing the walk through a North American winter. Like I do a lot of backcountry skiing. If you're going to camp out, it's not many days that you do it because as you say, as soon as it's dark, you can't have a fire. You know, you're in bed and you sit there for 14 hours and 
I couldn't imagine doing that day after day, week after week. So uh, I actually think you're ending with like the Herculean task. Like it seems it's it's the hardest part. So uh, I think it's incredible that you're doing it because again, I would not want to camp out every single every single day in a bitter North American winter. Yeah, so it's maybe a good way of looking at it. Maybe it is the Herculean task, and it is actually just challenging. It's not me. It is actually just challenging, and it sucks. <laughs> you mentioned coming back to to the states. It's kind of something you know. Granted, it's probably changed a lot since you've left, but you kind of know the culture. So your brain probably isn't, you know, getting as much stimulation. You're just sitting in a tent for probably four or five hours awake, just waiting to be tired enough to go to sleep. Where that's mentally, that's really, really tough to do. Like when I go backpacking, if we have a, a rain day and you're in your tent most of the day, like one day sucks. But again, doing it all the time, it's not just physically difficult because it's cold, but it's actually probably very, very mentally difficult. Um, on to, on to some, some more exciting parts. So when do you expect to, to finish up? You're ending up in, in New Jersey. Is that correct? I'll end in New Jersey in my hometown, Hand Township, where I started. I'll be there in about three months. I'm aiming for the weekend of May 21st. Uh, so the weekend before Memorial Day. I have a friend getting married Memorial Day, so I want to make it back before then. Uh, so right now I have about 1,500 miles left. And so 500 miles in about three months is what I need to walk, which isn't crazy demanding, but also it's enough where uh, I can't really slow down either. So it's kind of this nice balance that I have right now where I'm, I'm going to have to push myself. Luckily, the days are getting longer, getting a little warmer. Uh, so hopefully some good, uh, some good quick walking ahead. You, you mentioned on some of your posts just how much you're looking forward to reconnecting with family and friends. I can only imagine being away so long. Um, a lot of people, when they go on shorter walks, you know, if they just do the PCT or another kind of through hike, they talk about the challenge of kind of getting back integrated in society and, you know, having a job and, and all those things. Is there any, you know, how do you feel about going from kind of every day being different or almost every day being different to, you know, going back to, to like a regular life? Are you worried about it? Do you think it'll be difficult or are you really itching to get back to, to that, that you're actually not worried because it's, it's like something you're craving. No, I'm worried. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I am craving it big time. And I think one of the, the things that I'm missing most out of a more stationary lifestyle is just like the mental bandwidth and time to be able to work on some larger projects and have periods of really deep intentional work. Uh, whereas uh, when I'm walking, you know, I'm tired at the end of the day, and that is like demanding uh, enough. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to first off that, and also just having friends around to like grab a drink with. I can't wait for that, and you know having Sunday dinner with my grandparents, and really just like a lot of simple things, just like being able to just like pop over to my cousin's house and say hi. And the thing about the World Walk as well is it's not exactly like a lot of other like large goals or expeditions even where say if you're a medical student or if you want to climb Everest or you know you're a PhD candidate something like that then you're still you can still have a community around you and you can still live with your wife or be near your family um you know, maybe you have periods where you're really honed in on something and you're working on it and you isolate yourself, but you can always go back and, and you know, visit or be near your, your loved ones. Uh, but with the World Walk, it's 
uh, you're, I was removed from everyone for years. And maybe once a year, a friend would visit me or a relative would visit me. But otherwise, I constantly out on my own. And and I knew that going into it, that was the trade-off is that you, you're going to miss out on a lot of things in that in you know a certain vein. But it's worth it because you know having an adventure and discovering parts of the world that you never imagined and, and have a, a much greater understanding of the world ultimately. Uh, but yeah, to get back to you know, in a roundabout way to get back to your question, yeah, I'm I'm pretty uh, worried about returning home. Uh, if only if it's just because of, because I have this well ingrained kind of expectation that I get up and I start walking and I'm moving and there's this very inherent gratification in each day of that I'm making progress and I'm going to lose that sense of progress when I stop that inherent progress and satisfaction from that and as much as I want you know to lay down in the same bed every night I think a part of that's going to eat at me as well because I'm laying in the same bed every night and there's stuff out there I could be seeing and it's really nice to camp outside when the weather's nice uh, so I think even though I know you know, intellectually, it's going to be challenging. I don't think that's going to help me either. I think it's just an adjustment that's going to be painful for a little while, you know, maybe for a year, and then I'll, you know, finally adjust to it and settle in. I could actually just ask you questions for another three hours. Uh, you, I, I know you've mentioned you're hoping to write a book after this. I can't wait. I love, I love books of these great journeys, and and you you know, be able to kind of like follow. I get my my Google Maps and follow along the journey is at least for the first year while you're struggling to to get back. Uh, I'm hoping you can make a lot of progress when you're on on your book because I'll definitely be uh, be one of the first to buy it. Uh, I want to say thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been great hearing your story and you know just sharing this you know this different approach to life of setting out to find meaning and then you know part of the meaning being it's the people that you love that you care about that that actually is a really big part. And I think that's a really good message. You know, a lot of people get stuck in a job and never focus, never realize how much they care about the people around them, never do the things they dream of. And, and you've kind of done both now. Uh, and I think it's a really great example of, of just a different way and probably, uh, uh, or definitely a much more fulfilling way to, to live. And uh, I really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It was a nice conversation, I hope. Maybe inspire inspires some adventures for some other listeners. I'm sure you will. Now, I know... Uh, if anyone wants to check out Tom's website, it's got some great blog posts, photos. Uh, it's at theworldwalk.com. It also has a link to his Patreon. Uh, he's kind of been self-funding a lot of this. He has, he has some sponsors, but um, he's walking every day. Uh, so, you know, any sort of help being a Patreon support, supporter can help. Uh, you can also find him on social media under The World Walk as well. And again, it's just a great way to travel vicariously and just see these incredible places. Um, and with that, I want to say thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back next week with more talk of epic adventures on the 10 Adventures podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. If you liked it, why not give us a review? Better yet, subscribe and get inspired again and again. Also, if you want to find your own adventures why not check out 10adventures.com where you can use our free resources to plan your own trip or book a tour in over 60 countries and make your own epic memories on your next adventure.